Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. And so this is a patient who had exertional heat stroke with acute kidney injury. And you can see that uh, the, it was a previously a healthy, a 22-year-old uh, male marathon runner. Um, and these lab measure, values that you see above were after initial cooling measures and after giving some IV fluids. And we have some other labs that are pending. So these are the only labs we have at this point. And these are the labs I'm going to go through and focus on today. And so let's start. And if you're not familiar with this nomenclature, I will talk about which values these are as we go through this. So let's start with the sodium. And you'll see that the sodium is 135, and next to it is the chloride is 100. And the, probably the most important concept when you're assessing sodium levels is to realize that sodium, is, you can think of it as, as always needing to be considered in conjunction with fluid. So don't make the mistake of just thinking of sodium losses or sodium gains. You also have to think of fluid losses, water losses, and water gains. Uh, because you, in essence, can have a person who could have a low sodium, a normal sodium, or a high sodium, and still, in essence, uh, be uh, hypovolemic, have intravascular volume depletion, just depending on things like other fluids that have been administered, et cetera. Um, Similarly, you can have fluid overload and have values high, low, or normal, uh, again, just depending on other fluids, et cetera. So, you're, so you always want to consider fluids and sodium together, uh, which means you're going to have to have know what fluids were administered, um, other comorbidities, past medical history, those sorts of things. Well, rather than focus on absolute values, I will talk about absolute values but uh, realize that it's often the degree of change that's really most important when looking at uh, lab values and beginning here with, with sodium. So as an example, if the sodium, uh, for, for many people, they would consider a sodium of in the 130 to 135 range as being relatively uh, mild uh, hyponatremia in that a more moderate hyponatremia in that 125 to 130 range, and then less than 125 in some sources is considered as profound hyponatremia. But just the low sodium level in itself, the level of sodium in your blood, that in and of itself isn't necessarily uh, associated with symptoms. And during my career, I've seen a number of sodium values that were less than 125 in patients who were totally asymptomatic. And that's because they had had long-standing hyponatremia. They're basically, their body had compensated for it. And in their case, they were they were asymptomatic, even though they had what looked from a lab standpoint is referred to as profound hyponatremia. So the, the degree of change in many cases is more important than the absolute value. Similarly, a high sodium, um, it's the same thing. You start getting sodium values above 160. Um, you start to get concerned because of the sheer level of the, the high sodium and as it relates to osmolarity in the body. 
But nevertheless, it continues to be the degree of change that we're often focused on. Per minute, per at least one resource where they tried to come up with some consensus recommendations, they were basically uh, looking at, at sodium and saying that if, if, the, if it's more than 48 hours, then it's chronic. If it's less than 48 hours, it's acute. So in other words, acute hyponatremia means that it's that the uh, low sodium has been present for less than 48 hours. Chronic hyponatremia is referring to this low sodium for more than 48 hours. And the reason that's important is because with chronic hyponatremia in particular, it's very important not to raise the sodium level too quickly. You can actually cause harm by doing that, what's referred to as an osmotic demyelation and, and nervous system injury from overly rapid increases in the sodium. Whereas at least with the acute form, the more acute form, you're able to raise it somewhat quicker, although again, there's still limitations as to how quickly and to what extent you wanna raise it. In general, when you're raising the sodium, you rarely want to raise it above low normal levels and often even just below normal uh, because again of this concern of, of raising it too rapidly and raising it, it too, too high. So bottom line, when you think of sodium, most important points is I want you to think that you need to know what's happening with the fluids to know why the sodium value is where it's at and always be considering it, uh, again, along with fluids. So in this particular case, what I'd really want to know in this marathoner is what, was, what types of IV fluids did this marathoner receive, did this male marathoner receive? Uh, assuming he received, uh, as an example, let's say he received a half-normal saline kind of solution, which would probably be unlikely, but it, but if you would, well, that could be one explanation for a somewhat lower sodium. Another possibility is that he, he received, um, in this case, uh, a normal saline kind of solution, but maybe insufficient amounts of it. Uh, maybe, for instance, during almost all of the race that the, uh, while he's running a marathon, that he was taking in a lot of hypotonic fluids, a lot of, of free water. So just in other words, tap water during almost all the race, and maybe the sodium level was lower than this, and it's actually now been increasing with isotonic saline, uh, with the normal saline, but it just still happens to be where, where it is. And so obviously at this point, we do want to have some other indicators of fluid repletion. I'd want to know, for instance, what the blood pressure is, the heart rate, findings on the physical examination, other findings to try to assess the adequacy of resuscitation rather than just focusing on the, the serum sodium. Serum sodium at this point, this appears to be an acute event, assuming that he had, he was, it says previously healthy, so you presume his, his sodium and the rest of his labs were normal prior to this event. And so in this case, the sodium at this point isn't telling us as much as probably getting a lot of this uh, other information. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, I'm off looking at sodium and chloride at the same time, and that's because in general, the sodium and chloride levels are going to go up and down together when, when the problem is a fluid disorder. So up and down together when a fluid disorder. So if, for example, let's say that the uh, marathoner uh, did not take sufficient fluids while he was running the marathon. And so in that case, the uh, body, the kidneys would be trying to hold on to sodium, but obviously the person is losing sodium and water through sweat and through some through his lungs. 
And in this case, what you'd expect is both the sodium and the chloride levels to, to go high, to be elevated. Because again, at this point, the person has insufficient uh, water relative, uh, um, uh, or the person has high sodium and chloride, because even though the person's lost sodium and chloride and water, the losses of water are more than the sodium and the chloride. The flip side is, let's say that the patient, as they're running the marathon, took in a lot of fluids, arguably more than, than he needed. In that case, you'd expect both the sodium and the chloride to be low. You'd expect the runner to have hyponatremia. So the sodium level might, for instance, be between 130 and 135. So it really just, again, depends on the, the, the fluids that were taken in conjunction um, with, uh, with the uh, sodium level. Now, if you see the chloride that's not going up or down in conjunction with sodium, what I want you to think of then is a potential acid-base disorder because chloride is involved in acid-base disturbances. And so a, a good example would be, let's say that the sodium was relatively normal at 140, but the chloride was 113. That would right away make me think of some type of acid-base disorder. For example, a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which is something that sometimes occurs when you give more hypertonic sodium chloride type of solutions. You can end up with this hyperchloremia. So if the sodium and chloride are going up and down together, fluid issue. If they're going, if they're not necessarily together, and especially if the chloride is high, you start thinking acid-base imbalances. All right, so that's, those are the major points that I want you to know for the sodium and chloride. So next, let's take a look at the potassium level. The potassium level in this case is, is 3.2. That's the value that's 3.2. Now, a key with potassium is that besides gains and losses that would occur, you have to have to cons also have to consider distribution of potassium within the body because potassium can go inside or outside the cells. And remember, with all of these values that we're looking at on the slide here, all of these are, are being measured in blood, in plasma, serum. And so because of that, they're only telling us what's happening in the extra fluid, extracellular fluid compartment. They do not tell us anything about what's happening in the intracellular fluid compartment. And what that, that's very important for some of these ions like, like, uh, potassium and phosphate where they're primarily intracellular because in the case of these ions, we're having to make the assumption that what we're seeing in the blood is reflective of what's happening inside the cell. And that may or may not be true. But nevertheless, the, we, we basically, when we look at potassium, we realize that there's this distribution that can take place and we have to consider that besides gains and losses. Now, in this distribution is associated with pH. And the general rule is that as a person becomes more acidotic and these hydrogen ions go into the cell, in that case, then the potassium ion leaves the cell and goes out into the extracellular fluid. And so if that happens, you would expect to see an increase in your blood potassium level in a person who's becoming more acidotic. And so that's another consideration whenever you're looking at potassium besides gains and losses. So in this case, I see a potassium of 3.2. Well, this could mean probably four different possibilities. One possibility is it's just an absolute decrease in potassium that's reflective of intracellular uh, and extracellular losses. 
um, a second um, uh, possibility is that the person is losing a bunch of sodium. For instance, for whatever reason, let's say the person is, is losing a bunch of sodium in the urine. Third possibility is it's a distribution change. That's something like a pH where the person has an acidosis, maybe from inadequate resuscitation. And in this case, the potassium level is low. The uh, um, Well, excuse me, and that'd be more of an alkalosis where it's, it's low to an acid-base uh, disorder. And then a, a fourth possibility is some combination of those different events. Um, if anything, if this person was under-resuscitated and, and we expect the person to have an acidosis, that, if anything, would make the potassium level go up somewhat. And the fact that the potassium is low then would be particularly disconcerting because it would mean that it's it's uh, arguably the level is even lower than it looks because if the person had an acidosis and the potassium shifted the outside, well, that means that if we correct the acidosis, the potassium is going to drop even more. And so... Again, this value of 3.2, it may not, it may seem, well, that's not that far below normal, but depending on the acid base state, it might be even lower than it looks uh, once we again correct the acid base disturbance. So, always when you're looking at potassium, look at what's going in, what IVs are running, et cetera. If it's a patient in a hospital, are there, is there potassium in the IV? Is there potassium in the drugs? So, all forms of potassium input. For, for the output of potassium, potassium is primarily lost in the urine. And so the most important thing is, is to be evaluating uh, uh, renal function, be kidney function, because if the kidneys start to uh, shut down, if you start to have acute kidney injury, then the potassium cannot be eliminated like it normally is in the urine and the level would almost certainly rise. And so one of the major First things you should think of when you see hyperkalemia or a rising potassium in a hospitalized patient is the potential for, for acute kidney injury. And so those are a, a couple of the uh, really important things to think of, is, again, especially in hospitalized patients, and then thinking of how that, that pH is, is, is affecting this. Um, the amount of potassium inside the cell is probably so much more than you would think of. In fact, the amount of potassium in the extracellular fluid is almost a rounding error compared to the amount of potassium inside of the cell. There are literally thousands of milliequivalents of potassium inside of the cell, whereas there's less than 100 milliequivalents of, of potassium uh, typically in your extracellular fluid. So again, it's a of these thousands of, of uh, millimoles of potassium, the vast majority are inside the cell. And that has importance, and that's, for instance, why when you give IV potassium, we have limits as to how quickly we give it. You know, for instance, in some hospitals, they'll have no more than 10 milliequivalents an hour of IV potassium on a floor, maybe 20 milliequivalents per hour IV potassium in an ICU setting. The reason for that is because we wanna make sure that there's adequate time for that potassium to shift across the cell membrane and go into the cell. And I had a good example of this that occurred one time where a physician had calculated a person's potassium deficit and came up with a few hundred milliequivalents. I think it was like 300 milliequivalent potassium deficit. And I have no doubt that the physician was right that there was a very large intracellular def deficit of potassium, but the physician ordered a, a potassium infusion and basically wrote an order 
to just check the potassium level the next morning. Well, this was in the afternoon. And so I suggested, well, let's get a potassium level this evening just so we can see where the potassium is going. And sure enough, the next morning I came in for rounds and the doctor says, I know, I know. And I didn't even know what he was talking about. Well, I went to look and what happened is in the early evening, the potassium level had actually started to go above the normal range while it was being infused. And once, and what had ha happened is for whatever reason, this person it just wasn't moving into the cell as quickly as it should have been. It turned out it did go back down. The person did end up restarting the, the or the nurse started the IV potassium again, and the person needed it. Um, their stores really were that low. But the lesson there is that it takes time to transfer across, which is why we often limit the amount that we're giving on an hourly basis, like in a hospitalized patient. All right, the next value then that we're looking at, uh, we already talked about the sodium, the 135, the chloride, the 100, and in this case, the potassium 3.2. The next value you see on the labs here is this value of, of 17, and that's the bicarbonate. And so you'll see one mistake that I often will hear students and residents, they'll, ref, uh, they'll look at this and they'll just call it CO2. And where they get that is because many labs often report the bicarbonate as the total CO2 content. And that has to do with the way that, that bicarbonate is measured in the body. But I always point out to the trainees, don't refer to it as CO2 because people aren't going to know whether you're talking about carbon dioxide or what. And so even though, if, even though the labs may say total CO2 content, um, I encourage, again, trainees to refer to it as, as, as bicarb. And in the case of bicarb, as with other labs, it's often not as much the absolute value um, that we're concerned about as it is how quickly and which direction it's going. And so the most important, when a hospitalized patient in particular, when you see a decreasing bicarbonate, the first thing I want you to think of is the potential for acute kidney injury, some form of renal dysfunction. And this gets back to just like potassium, the majority of the acids in your body, well, let me back up. During a normal diet, a typical diet, the, the macronutrients that, that a person um, takes in, whether it's oral or, or IV, like parental nutrition, those macronutrients are broken down to acidic byproducts. And there's two major ways the body gets rid of these acidic byproducts, either through the lungs in the form of CO2, carbon dioxide, and I do mean carbon dioxide in this case, or via the kidneys, they excrete these, the non-volatile acids via the kidneys. What that means is that if the kidneys start to shut down, obviously the person is going to start accumulating those acids. And that's what's leading to the metabolic acidosis. So virtually any every patient who develops acute kidney injury at some point is likely going to develop a metabolic acidosis because of those acids accumulating. And so while that isn't the only reason, that by far is the most common one that you should be considering in a hospitalized patient, a decreasing bicarb being thinking of an acidosis and in particular a person with acute kidney injury. On the high end of a bicarb, you usually, you'll less commonly see high bicarbs um, in a hospitalized setting unless, for instance, the person is actually getting exogenous bicarbonate and too much of it. However, where you will see it are patients with, with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary, chronic obstructive lung disease. Because those patients tend to have a chronic respiratory acidosis, 
their bicarb levels will be high normal or even higher than normal because they're compensating for this respiratory acidosis. And so in that case, you'd expect the CO2 or expect the bicarb to be high in a patient with COPD. Um, and in that case, even if the value is above normal, as long as the pH is close to normal, that's really not a concern because that just means the, is, the person is compensating appropriately for this respiratory acidosis uh, due to CO2 re carbon dioxide retention. So that's most commonly as an outpatient, you'll see high, if you were measuring labs in a patient, you'd most commonly see a high bicarb in a patient with, with COPD. And similarly, a person who's being admitted and if they had a high, high bicarb and really nothing else, again, no exogenous bicarb, et cetera, that's something you'd likely wanna consider. So that's it for bicarb. By the way, on the low end, the concern with the values when they start getting 15 or less is that you're actually using some of your bone for buffering. And so at some point, if we don't reverse the acute kidney injury, and let's say the person goes to dialysis, we will need to be giving either bicarb or a bicarb precursor to those patients. So even though I'm not a big bicarb fan for a lot of different things, this is one case where you likely will be giving, as I said, either bicarb or likely a bicarb precursor is a person who's actually going into a kidney failure. All right, the next two labs then that we'll talk about are the BUN, which is 14, and the creatinine, which is 1.6. So let's start with the BUN. The, the, one of the issues with interpreting a BUN is that it's greatly affected by diet. So if you have a meaty diet, as an example, the BUN may well go up due to that. Or the flip side, if you have a high hospitalized patient who's receiving amino acids, being a parental nutrition solution, it may well go up. Uh, to give you an example of the latter, a typical daily diet has about 0.8 grams per kilogram of protein. Well, we'll often start patients on parental nutrition at twice that, 1.5, 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. So it's no surprise that as a nitrogenous waste product, it, it, the BUN is going to accumulate and you'd expect it to be higher and it often is in patients receiving, for instance, parenteral nutrition. So, the, so what that means is the bicarb may be altered due to fluids. It may be altered due to diet, especially the, the protein in a diet, or it may be due to kidney uh, dysfunction. But unfortunately, because it's affected by a number of these things, it's less useful. Um, a rising bicarb, so if, if the creatinine is staying the same and the bicarb, so the creatinine is, let's say, is, is holding steady, but the bicarb is increasing, then that's referred to as an increasing BUN to creatinine ratio, and that is suggestive of fluid depletion. And so let's take an example of that. Let's say you have a patient with a BUN of 10 and a creatinine of 1, and then suddenly the person starts becoming uh, fluid de intravascularly depleted, and the BUN goes up to 18 and the creatinine still 1. Then the BUN goes up to 28 and the creatinine still 1. Well, that's really of little concern at this point because just an isolated BUN doesn't isn't associated with much harm. But once the creatinine starts to go up with that increasing BUN, then we get concerned because that means the person's likely developing acute kidney injury from hypovolemia. So that's where the BUN is useful. So the BUN to creatinine ratio, if that's greater than 20 to 1, that is suggesting often you should be considering hypovolemia or intravascular depletion. Again, a BUN greater than 20 to 1 
suggest intravascular depletion. However, keep in mind the diet. Um, as for a low BUN, that's of little clinical significance and is often just reflective of the fact the patient hasn't had any significant nutrition for a couple of days. So let's say as an example, you have a BUN that's actually lower than normal in a hospitalized patient who hasn't been eating or getting IV nutrition. Well, that would be expected. You wouldn't do anything about it other than give nutrition once you're able to, but that's of really no concern to have a low BUN. Now, in this case, you look and the BUN isn't that high, but the creatinine is elevated. So this is obviously a concern because as a creatinine starts to go up, that is clearly suggesting that the uh, patient is starting to have some type of acute kidney injury. And so if this BUN was 14 and the creatinine was one, I would probably look at it and assuming that the creatinine had been relatively stable around young one, it probably wouldn't be any cause for concern. But let's say that this person, it was 14 and the creatinine was one, then the BUN is 14, the creatinine is 1.3. And then the next time you check a level, BUN is 14, creatinine is 1.6. Now I'm getting concerned because that again, with the creatinine rising, that's suggesting um, that the person is developing acute kidney injury. Now, often the BUN and creatinine go up together. Uh, in this patient, it just so happens for whatever reason, the BUN stayed a little lower, maybe because of, again, poor nutrition or something. But in general, they go up to, together. So a person that's going from acute kidney injury into full-blown renal failure, in that case, you'd expect the, both the BUN and the creatinine to start rising until they reach a steady state. And once the BUN starts getting around 100, then you start thinking you probably need to do some dialysis because that's probably reflective of accumulation of other kinds of, of uh, nitrogenous waste products and other harmful uh, mediators. And so uh, uh, while the BUN, le the absolute BUN level is left con less concern, it's, it's more that it's reflective of other things that are likely happening. And so three overarching indications for dialysis are this high BUN that's likely reflective of other problems, fluid overload, and hyperkalemia. Uh, those are three common indications for having to do dialysis. All right, and then on the right, you see the value for for uh, uh, glucose. I'm really not going to spend a lot of time on that other to, than to say at hospitalized patients and especially critically ill patients, we know now that we uh, really should not be aiming for strict uh, glucose control, tight glucose control. The NICE sugar tri trial, largest trial, uh, today with over 6,000 patients has uh, demonstrated that we can actually increase the rates of hypoglycemia and, and uh, potentially worsen outcomes um, if we try to maintain intensive glucose control. And so I won't, again, I think most of you are fairly familiar with that. Uh, the one thing I would say about high glucose levels is we really don't know for sure what the high, what should be our sort of high end of our glucose level. Some people say 200, some say 220, some say 180. Um, the concern is that when it gets very high, that it, it's almost you're almost like an immunosuppressive kind of uh, effect in a patient. And and uh, uh, so we are concerned when they, when it gets too high, not to mention osmotic diuresis, other problems. Um, but uh, in general, we don't know exactly where that cutoff should be. Uh, one final thing I forgot to mention when I was talking about sodium is if your glucose level is getting to be above normal level, uh, the, the sodium basically, um, as that glucose rises, it causes the sodium level to drop through this uh, effect 
um, this dilutional effect. And so you'll basically for each 100 milligram per deciliter rise in glucose above 100, you can basically expect the sodium to drop by 2.4 millimoles per liter or milliequivalents per liter. And the reason that's important is because when you look at your sodium level, you got to take into account if a person has a very high glucose level in the hundreds, let's say three or 400, you've got to realize that once that's corrected, your sodium level is going to go up um, as you lower that glucose level. All right. And then we have the calcium. The calcium level, at least in non-critically ill, well, the calcium level in general in hospitalized patients is usually a total calcium level, both free and bound. But remember, it's the free level that's the uh, active form. And so you, uh, in the ICU setting, really the uh, correction equations have never been shown to be very accurate. And so it's we typically like to monitor a free calcium level if there's any concern that it's calcium is too low. Um, there are these calcium correction equations that have been used in other settings, but Again, their accuracy is, is questionable. Um, phosphate, uh, major thing I'd say with phosphate, since I'm running uh, somewhat low on time, is to think of phosphate like potassium. It's an intracellular cation. Uh, don't forget about it. Uh, um, um, and, uh, intracellular anion. As, uh, don't forget about it when you're, uh, just like when you have a person who has a low potassium, you always want to think they might have a low FOS, and especially a person who's poorly nourished where you might have a refeeding syndrome, um, that's when you want to be thinking of, of replacing these low phosphate levels. MAG is another one that tends to be primarily uh, intracellular, another one that can be low. About half of the MAG is eliminated renally, half through the GI tract. So it seems like even in a person with renal failure, it doesn't go up, MAG doesn't go up quite as much as the FOS and potassium often uh, do because of some elimination through the uh, GI tract. All right, well, let's move on for the sake of time, and I'll give you what I'll refer to as a post-test here. And so the first question, if the patient's serum potassium was 3.2 milliequivalents per liter when the pH was 7.1, what will the serum potassium concentration be after the pH is corrected to 7.4? Now, be careful when you look at this because the patient is starting at an acidic pH of 7.1. And so, as you, and by the way, I didn't say it in my talk, but a general rule of thumb for each 0.1 change in pH, there's a 0.6 change in potassium. For each 0.1 change in pH, a 0.6 change in potassium. So, in this case, because this is pH instead of 7.4 is 7.1, that'd mean it's a change of 0.3. And that'd be equivalent to a 1.8 change in potassium. But the question for you is, well, 1.8, but which way is it, which direction? And here the answer is A. Basically, in this case, as the person's getting more alkalotic, the potassium is being driven into the cell. So it's opposite as if the person was becoming more acidotic. So in this case, by, by raising the pH, you could have a pretty dramatic drop in potassium. Next question, which of the following lab parameters is most indicative of excess uh, water intake? Excess water intake. If you look through these options, you'll remember that it was decreasing sodium and chloride. So excess water and intake would tend to cause a dilutional decrease in your sodium and chloride. An increasing BUN creatinine is clearly wrong because that's due to fluid depletion. Decreasing bicarb, well, that's not the uh, uh, case. Um, that would, if anything, again, would be fluid depletion. 
And decreasing glucose, again, just wouldn't have anything to do with that. And then finally, extra credit. And I'll go through these relatively quickly just to give you the answers. Which of the following drugs may cause hyponatremia? And more than for each of these questions, by the way, more than one answer may be correct. So look through these drugs and determine in your own mind which ones you think may cause hyponatremia, low sodium level. And in this case, the answer is carbamazepine, citalopram, and hydrochlorothiazide are the three. They've all been associated with hyponatremia. That's a concern with all three, not genomycin. Which of the following drugs may cause hyperkalemia? And again, more than one answer may be correct. Albuterol and naloperil, losartan, tacrolimus. And here, the only one is albuterol, which actually can cause hypokalemia. As a matter of fact, we can use it to, in some cases to treat hyperkalemia. Which of the following drugs may cause a metabolic acidosis, as reflected by a decreasing serum bicarb level? Some of these you may remember. I suspect you may get the aspirin, metformin. And the answer is all of these. Propofol can cause this propofol infusion syndrome, a metabolic acidosis. Acezolamide can cause a hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis. Aspirin, especially in overdose states, can cause an acidosis. And then metformin can cause a lactic acidosis. Which of the following drugs may cause acute kidney injury, as evidenced by an increase in serum creatinine? Cisplat, colistin, cyclosporin, morphine. Well, while morphine has an active metabolite uh, that is a concern in patients with acute kidney injury, it doesn't. There's no little evidence that causes acute kidney injury. And then calcium, which of the following drugs may cause hypocalcemia, especially if the drugs are given for a prolonged period? And you look through these potential responses, and the answer is B and C. All right, so the key takeaways from my talk is remember that sodium and chloride usually change in the same direction with fluid disorders, so suspect acid-base disturbances if they're going in different directions. And my example I used was a person with a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis where their chloride might be very high, but their sodium level within the normal range. Another key takeaway, potassium concentrations in the blood are not only affected by potassium gains and losses, but also by acid-base disturbances and particularly metabolic acidosis, where the, as the hydrogen ions goes into the cell, the potassium comes out, and it can, so it can lead to an increasing potassium levels that you see in your labs. And then my last one is the key takeaway is an increasing BUN with a normal or unchanged creatinine usually indicates fluid depletion or increased protein intake, but an increasing creatinine, that's suggestive of acute kidney injury. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, 
be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.